Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 152, The Fall of Alexander Battenberg. Now, I just recorded the last episode yesterday, so no new patrons in the last 24 hours or so, which means we can get right into it. Last time, we covered the weeks of the war as Bulgaria turned the tide and pushed into Serbia before a threat of intervention from Austria-Hungary forced a ceasefire. Subsequent negotiations saw Bulgarian demands for financial compensation go nowhere, as it was cleared that without any great power backing, Bulgaria had to accept what it was given. Nothing. So, the treaty ending the war did only that. It ended the war. Eventually, further bilateral negotiations with the Ottomans saw Bulgaria gain recognition for its unification, but at substantial cost. So now, Bulgaria was unified, but the cost of that unification was tremendous. The economy was in crisis, the country was diplomatically isolated, and all of these issues were being blamed on Prince Alexander Battenberg. As a result, there was an attempt to kidnap him by Russian agents, which failed. But despite that failure, Russia, many Eastern Romanians, as well as many political and military officials wanted the prince gone. But first, elections had to be held. Obviously, now that Bulgaria was unified with Eastern Rumelia, it needed a new national assembly to reflect that. So, elections were held in May, and as usual, there was some violence, voter intimidation, and other illegal measures, and these tactics ensured that the delegates from the original Bulgarian state were ready to tow the government line. However, the delegates from what had recently been Eastern Rumelia were not about to be intimidated in the same way. Still, it seems that the liberals under Karavilov managed to remain in power. When the new National Assembly sat for the first time on June 2nd, issues arose literally from the beginning. Prince Alexander's speech opening the Assembly did not mention Russia, which Tsar Alexander took as yet another in a long list of slights. Even officially approving the union with Eastern Romalia was somehow controversial, as pro-Russian members worried that doing so would further strain that relationship. Stefan Stambolov, still president of the assembly, was so annoyed with those refusing to officially approve unification, he stated, quote, A man must be blind, must be deaf, must be asleep the whole year through not to see that union has occurred. End quote. Union was soon officially approved by the Assembly. But the controversies just kept coming. Soon, the new representatives from Eastern Romalia realized that the budget didn't include any money to pay their soldiers who had fought in the recent war. This money ultimately came from the former National Bank, but it pointed to just how frustrating the unification process was for many despite all the pre-planning which had occurred. Next, the Ruse-Varna railway line came up again. 
Although it seemed like it had been resolved before, the war in unification had forced a delay, and in the meantime, the British shareholders had decided that it was time to ask for even more money for a railway line that was even less useful than before. Karavelov stated that he was ready to accept the new price, even though he had previously denounced the previous lower price as itself being outrageous. So all of this caused much anger and much shouting in the National Assembly. Coupled with all of this was political turmoil, as a bad spring harvest had basically added on to all these issues, and the whole situation was that things were looking very bad for newly unified Bulgaria. Connected to every every other issue was the matter of Prince Battenberg. He was becoming the central pivot point of Bulgarian politics, with two sides lining up, for and against him. Those against him saw the situation in frank terms, often saying simply, quote, Bulgaria without Russia is not possible, end quote. So, because the prince was unacceptable to Russia, ipso facto, he had to go. As the summer of 1886 wore on, things got more and more difficult for the Karavelov government. His justice minister attempted to resign and changed parties after his resignation was refused. By the end of June, Stambolov and Karavelov were making an official overture to Russia in an attempt to ease relations, while just about everyone in Sofia had some feeling that there was probably a plot against Battenberg in the works. By late July, that plot was in its late stages as the main Russian agent in Sofia sent the following telegram to the foreign minister. For once, the Russian agents were actually keeping their superiors informed on matters in Bulgaria, so that was a, I guess, welcome change of pace. Now, that telegram read, quote, The conspirators intend to, on the overthrow of the prince, intend to carry out the coup using the 2nd Infantry Regiment, which will need to replace the 1st Infantry Regiment, the one stationed in Sofia. The latter must be sent to Slibnica under the rationale of fortifying the Serbian border. The conspirators will try and convince the prince of the necessity of fortifying the border by means of falsified reports of Serbian preparations for war. The report laying out the importance of these measures will be delivered to the prince on July 29th. If the report is approved, then the arrival of the 2nd Infantry Regiment can be expected on August 1st. The conspirators consider the movement to be advantageous, seeing as almost all the forces loyal to the prince will be away from Sofia. End quote. Then, two days later, a second telegram arrived, reading, quote, Today, the prince agreed to send the Serbian border the two platoons of the 1st Regiment, which will depart tomorrow morning. Remaining will be the less loyal platoons. The 2nd Regiment will arrive in Sofia on August 1st. Upon the overthrow of the prince, the conspirators plan to assemble from all the political parties a temporary government, which will turn to the imperial government with a petition which will acknowledge the extant reality and request the Tsar immediately dispatch an imperial commissioner and officers to hold office. The temporary government will request as commissioner one of the more popular Bulgarian generals, Ignatiev or Dundukov Korsakov. So, all that is to say, the idea was to get all loyal troops out of Sofia under the pretense that they were needed on the Serbian border, and that was going well. And once all the uh, once the coup was kind of taken place, that a temporary government would quickly be put together, and it would be basically run by the Russians. 
So the coup was coming together. On the military side, it was led by three graduates of the Russian Military Academy, several of whom felt slighted after being passed over for promotions following heroic fighting at Slivnitsa. On the civilian side, there were Dragan Tsankov, no surprise there, and Metropolitan Kliment. Now, while it was clear that Tsankov was a political opportunist who had been betting on the ultimate victory of the Russophiles for some time, the Metropolitan Kliment simply disliked Alexander and his policies. So while preparations were nearing completion, Tsar Alexander III was quite concerned about the whole thing, stating, quote, This is not a serious conspiracy, but a trap designed for us. End quote. When he was told the plot had serious support in the army, he quipped, quote, It would be interesting to know why. End quote. Still, despite his reservations, he allowed the coup to proceed. So, on the night of August 8th, Battenberg was awakened by his valet to find two military leaders of the coup standing there with abdication papers in hand, which he signed at gunpoint. He was then rushed to a monastery near Sofia, and from there to the Danube, where he boarded his yacht and traveled to Russian Bessarabia, and from there to his home of Darmstadt. Somehow the bloodless coup had basically gone off without a hitch. The Tsar announced the news to his soldiers while on maneuvers, and they all cheered, God save the Tsar, in unison. Battenberg's personal chaplain described the scene at the Russian consulate the morning after the coup, writing, quote, I saw a body of about 200 peasants and Romani proceed to the front of the Russian consulate and Bogdanov, Sacharov, the Russian military attaché, Zankov, and Clement appeared on the balcony above. Clement gesticulated as if he wished to speak and began. By the time I got to the place he had finished, I saw him fall on his knees and heard him call upon his peasants to do the same. Doffing their fur caps, they threw themselves, as if at the word of command, into the ankle-deep mud, and Bogdanov opened his mouth and stammeringly declared that the Tsar would, with pleasure, vouch for the safe and safety and protection against, of Bulgaria and that he loved it still. But only the true old Bulgarian people, and he would certainly send the Bulgarians a new and better prince. End quote. So, a new provisional government was quickly formed under Metropolitan Clement, with its first order being to confirm the removal of Battenberg. This was done by forging Kadovelov's signature, as Kadovelov himself was put under house arrest. Flyers were distributed around Sofia, announcing that, quote, the provisional government is assuming direction of affairs until the meeting of the National Assembly guarantees the life and honor of Bulgarians and foreigners, being convinced that the inhabitants of Bulgaria, without distinction of religion, race, or political opinions, will second our efforts in maintaining order and tranquility throughout the country. The Bulgarian people may be well assured that His Majesty the Tsar, the protector of Bulgaria, will not cease to afford his powerful aid and protection of our country." End quote. So, it was true that Russia and its Tsar were absolutely delighted with this turn of events, and quickly promised to protect Bulgaria, and immediately provided the government 800,000 francs for its expenses. However, ironically, the conspirators had made the same mistake that Battenberg himself had made after his recent coup. In both cases, the coup leaders assumed that once their main obstacle was out of the way, that everything else would just kind of fall into place. Spoiler alert, it would not. Or, as Rekun put it, quote, 
All throughout this period, the pan-Slav idea was to assume that the Bulgarian people were naturally on the side of their erstwhile liberators. The German Battenberg and the treacherous Bulgarian politicians alone were blamed for the breakdown in Russo-Bulgarian relations. The belief was that once the prince had been removed, then the Bulgarian people would embrace their Russian patrons and closer relations between Russia and Bulgaria could be re-established. Russia's own offenses, such as Enruth's coup and the public stance against unification, would be forgotten. This did not occur. End quote. All that is to say, the coup plotters seemed to just assume that once Battenberg was out, everything would fall into place. But in particular, they did not account for Stefan Stambolov. Now, if you'll remember, Stambolov had opposed Battenberg in the past, particularly his coup, but he now stood as the exiled prince's main defender. This was in part because he was worried about Bulgaria becoming a Russian puppet, and because he saw this as his opportunity to advance his political career. Now, Stambolov heard about the coup in a similar way to most other senior Bulgarian officials, i.e. when he heard that he was to be the member, uh, a member of a new provisional government. So, it seems to have been simply assumed that these men would join the new provisional government, and they were all very surprised to hear, and rather furious to hear even, that they had been included in these government lists without ever being asked. So, yeah, you can imagine you find out there's a coup because someone tells you that, uh, you know, you're part of the new government, and you're like, wait, what? Excuse me? So, yeah, that, that's how a lot of people heard about things. Thus, within 48 hours of the coup, opposition was beginning to form with Stambolov as its leader. Immediately after hearing that he was supposedly going to join the new government, Stambolov contacted Tsankov, stating that, quote, he recognized no provisional government and would have no share in, do in the doings of traitors on whose accursed shoulders should rest the whole responsibility, end quote. In fact, it wasn't just senior officials who were angry at the coup. Many ordinary Bulgarians were angered or saddened by the sudden departure of Battenberg. I mean, it's somewhat understandable, right? Often there can be someone you get frustrated at, you dislike, but when they're gone, you kind of miss them. We probably all experienced that in some way or another. So even though Battenberg was not super popular, that didn't mean everyone welcomed his departure. Thus, the backlash to the coup grew quickly. The Plovdiv garrison refused to swear allegiance to the new government, and demonstrations quickly developed in front of European embassies, with people calling for, even demanding, the prince's return. But Stambolov was doing far more than that. He immediately set about sending telegrams and messengers all over the country, rallying political and military figures to oppose the coup. He framed the issue as being a choice between order and rebellion, between Russian vassalage and independence. He won the support of nearly everyone he contacted. So the coup had occurred on the night of August the 8th and into the 9th, right? So it's now the 11th and the coup's already looking pretty shaky. Stambolov issued a proclamation stating, quote, In the name of Alexander I, Prince of Bulgaria, and of the National Assembly, I declare to be outlaws the members of the provisional government at the head of which is Clement. And anyone who obeys the orders of that government shall be tried and punished by military law. I appoint Lieutenant Colonel Mutkurov to be commander-in-chief of all Bulgarian forces, and I order all the authorities of the country, both civil and military, to submit without attempting opposition. 
I appeal to the heroic Bulgarian people for the defense of the throne and the country against the traitors who have tried to dethrone our heroic and well-beloved prince. May God Almighty give us strength in order that the nation may defend its honor, its rights, and the glory of our country and of our prince, elected by itself. Bulgaria forever. Long live the Prince of Bulgaria, Alexander I. End quote. So, that, that, that proclamation made it pretty clear where Stambolov and those backing him stood at this point, that there would be no quarter given to those who supported the coup. By the end of the day, Stambolov and his supporters were firmly in control of Turnoval. Soon, he is, and his new commander-in-chief sent telegrams to the heads of the provisional government, informing them that they had 24 hours to step down on pain of death. By this point, out of the 12 army regiments, only two were loyal to the provisional government, with one more remaining neutral. The remaining nine were loyal to Stambolov. So by August 12th, just over three days after the coup, it was clear to the coup leaders that they were at a severe military disadvantage within Bulgaria. In addition, it quickly became clear that none of the great powers, not even Russia, was willing to intervene. It seemed that the Tsar's initial hesitations about the coup had been accurate, and he now wanted to simply wash his hands of the whole business. Finally accepting that their provisional government was going nowhere, the conspirators released Karavelov and asked him to form a coalition government with them to avoid bloodshed. He agreed, and a new government was formed, although the heads of the coup took this opportunity to flee to Russia. In his new position, Karavelov begged Stambolov to come join him in this new government to avoid potential military intervention from Russia or Serbia, but Stambolov ardently refused. By the 15th of August, it was clear to everyone that Karavelov's attempt to create a coalition and avoid a basically bloody end to the coup had failed, and Karavelov resigned the next day when soldiers from Plovdiv entered Sofia to overthrow the new government. Thus, on the 16th, a regency was established, headed by Stambolov. It quickly sent out a telegram to Prince Alexander, although they weren't exactly sure where he was, and it eventually found him in Lemberg, modern Lviv, in Ukraine. It requested that he return at once to Bulgaria, and the prince wasted no time doing so. Stambolov and other officials rushed north to Ruse to meet the prince as he crossed the Danube from Romania. It's kind of funny. He had actually only been out of the country for 11 days. So, you know, it hadn't even been as long as uh, most people's you know, proper vacations. But despite the short period of time that this coup had really lasted, it was a very emotional homecoming. But importantly, it also caught Russia totally off guard. Although it was clear to everyone in St. Petersburg that the coup had failed, it evidently hadn't occurred to anyone that Prince Alexander might actually return because the coup failed. I assume they simply thought that, yeah, the, the coup plotters failed, but like the Bulgarians will still find a new prince. I, I, don't, I don't really know what they thought would happen. Now, the Russian vice consul was actually there to meet the prince in Ruse. However, this was simply because he had no guidance or instructions from St. Petersburg. You know, the usual. The prince, for his part, wrongly interpreted this as meaning that there was an opening to men relations with the Tsar, his cousin. With this in mind, he quickly sent a telegram to Alexander II without consulting anyone in the new government. So, again, when Tsar Alexander 
reached Bulgaria again, the Russian vice consul was among those there to meet him, and he thought this meant that, okay, relations are better, now we can kind of, you know, mend the fence, uh, bury the old uh, hatchet, and move along. So he sent this telegram, writing, quote, I thank your majesty for the attitude taken by your representative in Rushchuk, i.e. Ruse. His very presence at my reception showed me that the imperial government cannot sanction the revolutionary action, action taken against my person. I beg your majesty to instruct General Dolgoruki to get in touch with me personally as quickly as possible. I should be happy to give your majesty the final proof of the unchanging devotion which I feel to your majesty's illustrious person. As Russia gave me my crown, I am prepared to give it back into the hands of its sovereign." End quote. Without realizing it, Prince Alexander had just destroyed any chance of remaining on the throne by placing himself in Russia's hands. He hadn't even reached Sofia when word of the Tsar's response, which the Tsar himself had published so everyone could read it, reached the prince. Tsar Alexander III responded to his cousin, quote, I have received your highness's telegram. I cannot approve of your return to Bulgaria in view of the disastrous consequences which it might entail upon the country, already so severely tried. It will not be advisable to dispatch Dolgoruki. I shall refrain from doing so during the unhappy condition to which Bulgaria is reduced as long as you remain there. Your Highness will understand what devolves upon you. I reserve judgment upon the course that I am bidden to take by the honored memory of my father the interests of Russia, and the tranquility of the Orient, end quote. Stambulov and the other officials who had just worked so hard to put the prince back on the throne were furious. Stambulov himself wrote, quote, This is the man for whom we have roused the whole of Bulgaria, have put our necks in the noose, and brother raised sword against brother, and he takes such a momentous decision without even telling us beforehand. He throws his crown at the feet of a foreign ruler and keeps us in the dark about it. End quote. Battenberg and his entourage reached Sofia on the 22nd and were greeted by jubilant crowds alongside more bad news. It seemed the other great powers, including Bismarck, would not support Prince Alexander against Russia. Maintaining good relations with the Tsar was simply far more important to them than backing little old Alexander Battenberg in little old Bulgaria. Stambulov desperately tried to persuade the prince to stay, but he had had enough. Battenberg was exhausted and knew both that most of the officers had at least known about the coup and done nothing to back him, and that he risked a Russian attack and occupation if he stayed. But most of all, as Rekun put it, quote, he was tired of Bulgaria and tired of politics. End quote. So, on August the 26th, just over two weeks after the coup and nine days after his triumphant return, Kinaz Alexander I of Bulgaria abdicated for the second and final time. Rekun quotes a conversation between Russia, Russia's foreign minister and the British ambassador, which basically summarized Battenberg's reign. Quote, That unfortunate young man, for I cannot sincerely pity him and regard him even more as a victim of circumstances than of his own faults, though these have been many, has become in the eyes of the Russian people the incarnation and embodiment of everything which most deeply stirs the national indignation. He represents in the first place the untold ingratitude of the Bulgarians 
for their deliverers, and reminds them of the losses in blood and treasure incurred in a war which yielded no other results but disappointments. In the second place, he reminds them all the hu- of all the humiliations submitted in the Constantinople Conference, which secured unification, and since. Lastly, he represents the hopes and desires of Russia's enemies. Never, therefore, could there be peace between him and the Russian people. End quote. And well, that's about it for this episode. Alexander Battenberg has finally been ousted as Prince of Bulgaria after just over seven years. In the end, it was basically his own fault. It's, it's kind of remarkable to see that this seven-year history of Battenberg and his uncle and then cousin on the Russian throne. All the arrogance, all the stupidity, all the poorly played politics, all leading up to this. And in the end, Bulgaria is the loser. You know, this this bad relationship was so kind of blamed. You know, it, it really led in so many ways to this Serbian war, right? To to the difficulties of unification, to all the Bulgarians who had to die at Slivnica, and for all the Serbs who had to die in that war, right? And all the indignation and the anger which had created between Bulgaria and Serbia and all those, you know, results coming from it. It all came from the way Alexander and the Russian Tsars played the game. And well, sadly, as we've learned time and time again to most rulers and particularly to the great powers, it's simply all a game. But to the everyday people whose lives are affected, it's far more real. And next time we'll have to see how things progress for them. Because now the question moves to who will replace Alexander Battenberg and what will happen to Bulgaria's relationship with Russia and the other great powers as Bulgaria enters yet another new era in its history. So you won't want to miss it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by the talented Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast at bghistorypodcast.com and you can find more info about this episode images, a timeline, major figures, all that stuff in the link below. And well, I'll see you next time.